This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. President Trump claiming victory in a new deal reached with Canada to revise the North American Tree Freight Agreement. Uh, freight, freight, excuse me, free trade agreement. Mexico had already signed on to this new trade pact, similar to NAFTA, but rebranded USMCA for United States, Mexico, Canada agreement. So, what does this new deal include, and what does it mean for the continuing trade disputes with China? Matt Gold joins us on the phone. He's an adjunct law professor at Fordham University and a former deputy assistant U.S. trade representative for North America. And also joining us is Andrea Bjorklund, who is a chair in international arbitration and international commercial law at McGill Faculty of Law in Montreal. Uh, Andrea also uh, formerly worked on the State Department's NAFTA arbitration team in the Office of the Legal Advisor and worked for Commissioner Thelma Askey on the U.S. International Trade Commission. Matt, Andrea, great to have you with us today. Thank you both. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. So looking at the agreement, uh, Matt, uh, how how do you view what was actually put down on paper or what we expect to be put down on paper in the next couple of weeks? Um, it's a, a large series of updates. You know, it, it's best to talk about what it isn't. Um, it's not going to bring back any manufacturing jobs from Mexico, and it's not going to um, eliminate or even meaningfully reduce our trade deficit with Mexico. Um, but it's, it, it also doesn't include um, almost any of a series of things that President Trump was demanding uh, that involved actual uh, concessions from Mexico and Canada. But what it is, what it does have is a very large number of updates uh, and improvements, things that we've seen in other free trade agreements that the United States has negotiated and, and entered into since we entered into NAFTA 25 years ago, and things that were in the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, trade agreement that, um, that Mexico and Canada and the United States were all part of, along with nine other countries, which President Trump pulled us out of. So it was a lot of catch-up ball getting back with Mexico and Canada a, a lot of more modern free trade agreement terms that we had put into the TPP agreement and that we were going to have with Mexico and Canada through the TPP agreement, but that uh, President Trump gave up when he withdrew from the TPP. So now we got them back in NAFTA. Andrea, what's been your reaction? Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I agree. I agree with Matt. Um, it's not a it's not a sea change. Uh, except perhaps in the area of investor state dispute settlement, the um, Chapter 11 of NAFTA, which under the this new agreement would be, well, would be eliminated as such. There'd be a three-year legacy period. These are for claims brought by foreign investors against host states. So Chapter 11, as we know it would end, there would be a a remnant of that as between the United States and Mexico only. So Canadian investors in the U.S. and U.S. investors in Canada, after a three-year implementation period, would not be able to submit those claims. So that's a difference. What's been the reaction in Canada to this? Because part of this uh, in the last few weeks has been the comments by uh, Prime Minister Trudeau of, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we get a good deal for Canada. Uh, well, I'm in Quebec, um, and of course, the dairy industry here is not at all pleased that there were concessions made on supply management and some really quite modest, um, in aggregate terms, opening of the market to 
uh, U.S. dairy products, but I think any opening here is not viewed favorably. So um, at least on a, on a local level, I don't think the new agreement has been welcomed. And dairy is one of the key components in that part of, of Canada? Yes. Matt, how do you th- how do you think that that we need to move forward with this? Because obviously, the, a lot of the talk that we've had with you in the past has been, you know, what is going to change with the auto industry? You know, uh, part of this was, with Mexico was uh, the upping of uh, of wages for people working on vehicles down there in Mexico, and also the part of uh, of the automobile sector where the percentage of the vehicle actually needed to be made here in the United States. Yeah, um, you, you, the two of you have just touched on the, probably the only two things that are in this agreement that are, are truly new and different um, and very interesting uh, that are more than just updates uh, per recent agreements the United States has negotiated with other countries, but in fact are, are actually updates that are, are new. Um, one of them is, are the changes with that, that uh, we just heard about investor state. Um, the U.S has put these investor state chapters and these investor state provisions in uh, all of our recent free trade agreements. This is the first time we're scaling back on that and going in the other direction, uh, which I think is a bad thing. I think it's being driven by the fact that people don't understand how the investor state rules work. Um, but I'll, I'll skip that and go, go to your question, uh, Dan. The, uh, for the automotive rules of origin, that's the other thing. Um, we, previously, if a car were assembled in Mexico, uh, and it were to, were to come to the United States or Canada duty-free, it, it would have to have had 62.5% of its content would have to have come from North America, meaning parts from one of the three North American countries, uh, the value of those parts plus the value of the Mexican assembly. Um, that's been increased. On paper, the increase is from 62.5% to 75%. In reality, it's more of an increase from 625 to 70 and the reason is because there um, are, I have to study this a little bit more, but um, from what we've, we understand that there's certain content that's allowed, that they're allowed to count in those numbers that they weren't allowed to count before. Right. But it is an increase in the North American content. And there's a, a groundbreaking rule that we've never seen before, which is that a certain portion of the content has to come from a labor that was paid uh, $16 an hour yeah. or more. And that's very interesting. And that and that may very well have an impact on what happens with the production of vehicles down in Mexico, correct? Yeah, I mean, it'll, it, it'll probably have a small impact on supply chains, but we're not sure how much because we're not sure what portion of these vehicles already have labor that's uh, $16 an hour or more. Um, to begin with, these vehicles always had Canadian and American parts whose labor is paid more than $16 an hour. And now they're allowed to account uh, to count into this design content, and the engineers who do the design for cars uh, also get paid more than that. So we're not sure uh, the content the cars already have is going to make up all or most of this requirement. Um, but they might need some additional um, parts that are $16 an hour or more, and that would mean sourcing more parts in Mexico, in, in the United States or Canada, or it would mean raising labor rates for some of the Mexican. Uh, workers, and we're not sure how much they're going to have to change, if at all, and we're not sure how the change is going to manifest. Are Mexican workers going to get paid more, or are they going to buy more parts from from the United States or Canada? Andrea? Yeah, I agree. I guess I just add to that the other, you know, difference, which is robotics, right, is mechanized labor. Right. 
and to what extent already cars are using, I mean, car manufacturers are using uh, mechanized labor to to uh, do some of the kind of repetitive work that tends to be lower paid. That's probably was going to increase, you know, is has been increasing and is going to increase anyway. So the actual impact of this 16 dollar an hour requirement is I, I i agree somewhat somewhat uncertain it's a selling point but whether it really has a significant impact is i think still unclear we're joined on the phone by matt gold of uh, fordham university andrea bjorkland of uh, mcgill faculty of law in uh, montreal canada 844-942-7866 or if you'd like send us a comment on twitter at biz radio 132 or my twitter account which is at dan loney 21 Matt, how, how do you think that then the farming community here in the United States, I, I've seen comments that, that they say that they are happy with this deal. How should they be reacting? Because they were in the midst and probably still are in the midst of, of this concern because of tariffs, that they were going to be losing a significant amount of their revenue. The government was going to be supporting them for the time being. How should farmers feel? Uh, two answers, one for agriculture generally and the other for dairy. For agriculture generally, uh, it's a huge sigh of relief for them. You know, I, I've been saying for two years, and Dan, you've heard, and Andrea, too, have heard me say this a hundred times, the United States is not pulling out of NAFTA. The, the threat was a bluff. But most people didn't, weren't confident the way I was. And the uncertainty of the threat to pull out of NAFTA was very, very worrisome to agriculture, U.S. agriculture, not to mention the fact that President Trump's um, WTO, WTO illegal tariffs on Canadian and Mexican steel and aluminum brought retaliation from um, Mexico and Canada, some of which was on U.S. agriculture. So agriculture lost a little bit, had lost a little bit of their markets in Mexico and Canada, and, and they were worried about losing more, plus they're worried about losing markets in China. So there was a lot of nervousness, and this is a great sigh of relief. Uh, for the U.S. dairy sector, um, you know, the U.S. dairy sector really cut very little and Canada lost very little. The two problems were solved. One was the ultra-filtered milk problem. Without explaining what that is, I'll just simply say that it's a problem that was created uh, in 2016 because of President Trump, because of what he was saying on the campaign trail. It was literally a problem that Canada created so that they could then let Trump solve it two years later mm -hmm. uh, and declare victory on dairy. The other issue was the, the special Canadian tariffs on other U.S. dairy products that are not ultra-filtered milk. Uh, those have been around for decades and decades and decades, and um, we wanted more access to the Canadian market. A little bit of our dairy gets into Canada without having to pay those those prohibitively high tariffs, and, and they opened up the market to a little bit more. But what they opened it up to was pretty much what we got into the TPP, um, and President Trump kind of threw that away when he threw out of TPP. So, again, it's catch-up ball with the TPP. Andrea? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's hard not to say that it would have been entire, much more efficient simply to have, for the United States to have stayed in TPP, and we would have avoided all of the sturm und drang of the last, you know, 13 months on renegotiating NAFTA. But um, after all, then what would, what would we talk about? <laughs> well, what about the lumber sector up in, up in Canada, Andrea? Because that's also been a concern over the last several months. Well, that has to be counted as a victory for Canada. Um, they, what Canada managed was to keep what it went in NAFTA was Chapter 19, which permits binational panel review of administrative decisions on anti-dumping and countervailing duties. This was actually part of the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, um, a brainchild of Brian Mulroney, and was a way to, I guess, have legalist, legal resolution of the perennial lumber, um, softwood lumber problem between the U.S. and Canada. 
Um, Canada got to keep this. It's very important for Canada. Um, whether in practice it makes an enormous amount of difference is perhaps um, open to question, but this permits Canada to have non-U.S. courts decide, um, kind of review the decisions of American administrative agencies about imposing countervailing duties on on softwood lumber. And for Canada, that's politically extremely important. Matt, a- any surprise that in the process of doing all this, that we still are, are still have the steel tariffs in place? Uh, great question. Hmm. Um, the steel tariffs are, are completely illegal, but they're illegal under the World Trade Organization agreements. Um, but NAFTA is sort of integrated with the WTO agreements. They work together. Right. Uh, they're also illegal under NAFTA as well. I mean, they, they violate both sets of agreements. Um, it is really surprising, actually. Uh, one would have thought that um, Canada and Mexico would not have agreed to anything unless um, elimination of the steel and aluminum tariffs on, on Canadian and Mexican steel and aluminum was part of the deal. Um, but um, they tolerated not doing that, and I think they reached the conclusion that resolving NAFTA would would tamp down um, the animosity in all three sides and, and maybe open the door um, to resolve steel and aluminum. They might also have had a signal that President Trump would be much more flexible in that after the U.S. midterm elections. Right. Um, the steel and aluminum are just a staggering negative for the United States in every way except for President Trump's personal politics. So they might uh, be able to, to get – they might have thought they were they, – it would be to their advantage just to put off that issue until after the midterms. Andrew? Yeah, I agree. That seems entirely, entirely plausible. There's certainly a history of using steel tariffs in particular in a, in a, in a political way. Um, we had it prior to, oh gosh, that was the 2000 elections or, um, um, now I'm losing the numbers, but at the 2002 elections, you had a tariffs imposed on steel and they were removed, they were found illegal by the WTO and removed immediately without a squawk after the elections were terminated. So I think that's entirely plausible. But you both bring up an interesting point, Andrew, I'll throw this to you, is that in terms of the time frame, we we all knew that that part of this, wanting to get this deal done by President Trump now was to be a benefit politically going into the midterm elections. It's something that, you know, he could use as, as see what I got done. And especially concerning uh, the people in, in middle America, the farmers, a lot of people who were, who voted for president Trump in 2016. Yeah. You know, it's hard. I don't know. Politics in the U S right now are hard to, hard to figure out. Um, but <laughs> no kidding. Uh, yes. Knows? The, you know, I would say that a majority of the farmers in middle America were probably going to vote Republican anyway. Right. Uh, you know, the, the districts in which we're seeing perhaps a blue wave in which the Democrats might overtake are not in in the heartland or not largely in the heartland. So I, I'm not sure that that's going to be a huge uh, uh, a huge difference, make a huge difference in the elections. Matt? Yeah, I disagree. I think that um, uh, it it was critical. Um, For one thing, President Trump, of course, made a lot of promises on the campaign trail. But I think the promise to bring back uh, lost manufacturing jobs um, through an overhaul of NAFTA was probably the one promise more than any other single promise that he was elected for. And he needed to show um, some kind of success. He's also gotten a lot of criticism from people like me for for his trade policy, and he wanted to show that that um, 
his, you know, bullying and obnoxiousness in the global stage actually works out and translates to America having more leverage in trade negotiations, which it doesn't, but he wanted to make it look like it did. Um, you know, failing and then declaring victory is what he did with the renegotiation of the Korean-U.S.F. free trade agreement. It's what he did with the Europeans when Jean-Claude Juncker came over here to, to shake hands and declare victory in, in the trade negotiations with Europe. In both those cases, he got literally zero concessions and declared victory. And in NAFTA... Right. Um, he got, you know, we got a lot of uh, changes that are mutually beneficial to all three countries, but the real concessions, he, he, he got very, very few of those. So it is politics. It is critical for the midterms, uh, in my opinion. There are a lot of purple states that, that swing back and forth that have agriculture. So, yeah, I think I think it's almost all politics. What a, one, me. Matt, one of the things we talked about before was also e-commerce, and, and I believe that is also something that was uh, was addressed in this as well. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's a classic example of things that are mutually beneficial to all three countries. You know, agreeing not to impede cross-border data flows, agreeing not to have uh, uh, customs duties on software, uh, agreeing, um, you know, not to have a local data storage requirements. So if you're a Canadian business, uh, like a Canadian bank doing business in the United States, the United States won't require you to store your data locally, except when we need to for national security purposes. Um, those kinds of agreements are mutually beneficial to all three countries. It's also the three countries agreeing to do things that none of them were doing, agreeing to not do things that none of them were doing and none of them, none of them planned to do. Um, but, uh, you know, these are still part of the update of NAFTA, things that we see yep. in other agreements and these are these are part of the update well and andrea that that seemingly is something that is long overdue and and i think it's one of the things we've talked about in terms of kind of updating a lot of things is making sure that we are in line with what we need to be because e-commerce is so big right now and seemingly is only going to get bigger in the years to come yeah yeah, no, I think, you know, I agree with Matt. This is an update. It's an, an important update and um, might be beneficial, I mean, to U.S. merchants who are certainly further ahead in terms of their, their e-retailing. Um, but, again, not a, not a huge sea change, um, but an important Important difference. I, there was another piece to it that, that I saw in looking at some of the articles, and, and, and I wanted to bring it up to you, Andrea, is is the fact that uh, it also mentioned about drug companies. And one of the things it mentioned was that, that drug companies in the U.S. will get two more years of protection against generic drugs from Canada. How big of an industry is generic drugs uh, in Canada right now? Um, it's, a, it's a really, it's a really huge industry, um, and I think that is something. Uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that is something of a victory for the United States, and maybe a little bit surprising that Canada was willing to uh, to give up on that, um, or to to give the the two further years of protection, which affects, I mean, not just the generic industry here, but also healthcare policy, which is, you know, much more uh, centralized than it is in the United States. Matt. Um, well, first of all, just to be clear, those are biologic drugs. You have synthetic yeah. drugs and biologic. Um, but um, it's important to remember the battle over the over the, the period of, of what is essentially like a patent for biological drugs was a big battle in the TPP negotiations as well. It's important to remember that you don't have one country on one side of this issue and another country on the other side. You don't even have political parties on opposite sides. You don't have demographics on opposite sides. Literally every person in the United States and every person in Canada and Mexico is on both sides of that issue. The, the, the longer you, you provide protection for, for a new drug, for a drug company, the greater incentive they have to, to invest money in research and development of new drugs. The downside, of course, 
case is that drugs remain more expensive for a longer period of time before yeah. they become generic. Mm-hmm. So every person's on both sides of that. Everybody wants their brand drugs to go generic sooner and get cheaper faster, but everyone also wants drug companies to develop new drugs um, that have fewer side effects, better efficacy, so on and so forth. So every single person's on both sides of that issue, and it's really not um, as sort of a trade battle or a demographic battle or a political battle in any of these countries. It's really a policy discussion about what's best overall. Any concern that Congress might do something to this uh, agreement, Matt? No, no. Um, everyone else's concerns. Uh, I, I'm, I guess I'm a maverick on more than one thing, but no, not at all. The Congress is going to approve this, and there will be a very different Congress starting January 1st. So when it comes time to approve this, um, we're going to see uh, the president's enablers no longer controlling the House of Representatives, and it's at least possible they'll no longer be controlling the Senate. They will still approve this agreement. Why? Because it's a net positive for the United States. It is a better, more modern agreement. You could argue, as I would, that President Trump managed it in a way that did so much more damage than necessary and ultimately the damage he did is not worth the gains that we got. But the damage is behind us. It's already done. And if you just look yeah. at, at the old NAFTA versus the new NAFTA, there's literally no reason not to approve it. it it's, it's an improvement. So now the conversation, Matt, turns to, it sounds like, turns to China, correct? That's correct. The conversation turns to China. Things are much uglier for uh, President Trump's strategies with China. Um, you know, with with, um, with South Korea, Europe, and North America, he really didn't accomplish hardly anything, but he was able to declare victory, and at least once things got resolved, he was no longer doing damage. But with China, um, my view, and I've done a lot of analysis on this, looked at the public statements and a lot of other things, and I think China has made a decision um, that they are going to wait for the next American president. So the United States and China have gone into a downward spiral all the way down to the basement. We imposed retaliatory tariffs on them. They retaliated against our retaliation and back and forth and back and forth. And now there, we have retaliatory tariffs on um, $250 billion of Chinese goods. It's half of everything imported to the United States. And they've got retaliatory tariffs on $110 billion of American goods um, in place or, or about to be put in place, which is, which is almost all the thing, goods that we're exporting there. And everyone's stuck now. And no right. one has a way out. No one has an exit ramp. President Trump isn't going to pull out um, because he, he won't admit that this was an incredible blunder. And the Chinese understand that no American president from either side of the aisle, no Republican American president or Democrat would ever do this and would ever maintain this after coming to office other than President Trump. So they're going to wait. They're going to, they, they see him losing part or all of the Congress, and they're going to wait in 2020 and see, see if, uh, if they can uh, resolve this with a new president. Andrea? Um, I think that's very astute, and I, I think that's absolutely right. I, you know, the China does not respond to a few public opinion and public pressures in the way that uh, the United States does, even even President Trump might, um, depending on his perceptions about what is beneficial for him and what, what isn't. And so China is completely capable of, of digging in and playing the long game, and I don't think they should be underestimated. So then, then Andrea, and this is a question I think to a lot of the consumers out there right now, with all of these tariffs between the United States and China, how much of an impact or when will consumers start to see some of the impacts from these tariffs? Because I, I don't think they've seen them up to this point very much at all, correct? 
Um, I think the best, yeah, I think the best guess is that they're going to start to see them possibly as early as the Christmas season and then into the new year. There was a lot of uh, stockpiling of merchandise um, yeah. in the last several months to, I mean, in the, to try to get in before the tariffs actually kicked in. So you have some inventories on hand, um, but uh, that will end. Um, query whether that it. Uh, uh, incites another round of tariffs because the trade deficit is almost certainly going to go up for the United States because of all of these these purchases, which will not make President Trump happy. Um, and uh, but of course the other thing that we see with consumer prices is that they are spread out. The the damage, if you will, is real but is very dispersed, and it's often difficult to draw the causal link for a consumer to draw the causal link from I don't know the tariffs to the way that the TV now costs, you know, 40 or $50 more than it would have otherwise. Matt, your thoughts? Um, I think President Trump, yeah, I, I, I agree with what Andrew just said. Um, but I want to add that I think President Trump has now gotten to the point where he realizes um, that his aggressive moves with national security tariffs and retaliatory tariffs were blunders. Um, he, the steel and aluminum tariffs, he thought he was going to get uh, other countries to respond in a positive way and, and give us concessions. And instead, all they did was retaliate. Uh, then he threatened to do automotive national security tariffs, just like the steel and aluminum. But he backed off of those threats. He, the, the pretend deal with the Europeans was face savings, so he could back off of that threat. And the NAFTA deal gives him face savings, so he can back off the, the, the threat of, of uh, national security tariffs on automotive to Canada and Mexico. He's backing off of the next step of, of national security. Tariffs, and I and I think he. Uh, if I had to guess, I would guess that he might back off of the the, the next round of China. We've gone three rounds of retaliation against retaliation. Uh, U.S. acting three times, China acting three times, and um, the the next round would be another 250 uh, tariffs on 250 billion dollars more of China's Chinese goods. So it would go from a total 250 billion to 500 billion, which is right. all the Chinese exports to the United States. I I, I suspect he's not going to take that last step because. At this point, he now knows that he's simply not getting the response that he wanted. He's getting the exact opposite, which is exactly the response you don't want. Great having you both with us. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Andrea. All the best today. Thank you, Don. Thanks. Thank you. Matt Gold from Fordham University. Andrea Bjorklund from uh, McGill Faculty of Law in Montreal. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 